Welcome to the Orange Socks Podcast, where we are inspiring life despite a diagnosis. I'm your host, Dr. Gerald Nebaker. I had the wonderful opportunity of meeting with Jess via Zoom call. Jess tells us about her daughter, Lily, who has respiratory distress syndrome or bronchiopulmonary dysplasia. Lily is a twin. Unfortunately, her sister was stillborn. They were born at 24 weeks, and Lily was only one pound, which is the gestational size of a 21-weeker. I know you're gonna enjoy this story. She was born extremely prematurely. She was one pound, one ounce at birth. And in the days leading up to, I was admitted before the girls were born and Lily was being monitored. And in that time, I, I, I mean, I had nothing but time. So I sat and researched and Googled as much as I could about the long-term outcomes for micropremies. And I mean, there's such a wide, variety of of disability and of complications that could stem from, you know, such an extreme, extremely premature birth. So we kind of had it in the back of our minds from the time we knew that she would be a micro preemie, but we didn't know exactly what specific complications there would be and what, you know, long-term comorbidities of prematurity. Yeah, we really kind of have all along, we've been prepared for really anything. I mean, we were told when when we had to, to deliver her, we were told that it was very, very unlikely that she would survive delivery. She was measuring in the like 400 gram range, which is like barely on the threshold of viability, but she came out at 504 grams, which is four grams more than their, you know, intubatable size. This caused bronchiopulmonary dysplasia, which was caused from long-term ventilation use. She also had a bowel perforation at birth. It was assumed that it would have happened in utero. So she was intubated a couple hours after birth and she had respiratory distress syndrome. So her lungs were so incredibly underdeveloped that they, the ventilator that was being used to keep her alive was also damaging and scarring her lungs. So they, you know, did all sorts of kind of like protection, precautionary measures. She had artificial surfactant and all, you know, they were very meticulous about their vent settings and giving her only the correct amount of oxygen and things like that. But even with those measures in place, respiratory distress syndrome turned into bronchopulmonary dysplasia, which is just long-term ventilator damage as a result of, you know, to keep her alive. So that was kind of, those are our our big, that's our biggest area of struggle would be her lungs. Additionally, she had a bowel perforation at birth. We think it happened in utero that we did not no, it was not visible on an x-ray. So for the first 30 days of life, she did not poop and we could not figure out why. So we did enemas and contrast studies and all sorts of things and nothing was happening. And she was progressively getting sicker and sicker and her lungs were getting worse and worse and her stomach was pushing up on her lungs and it was really horrible. So at 30 days, we consented to an exploratory bowel surgery and she it ended up that she had a a perforation in her jejunum so like right where her stomach meets her bowel she coded on the table they had to resuscitate her it was really aside from her their birth it was probably one of the most traumatic events of my life because lily coded 
instead of reconnecting her stomach and intestine like the doctor wanted to, they did an ostomy bag, which she wore for five months. All of the, the bowel issues and the digestion issues really played into how weak and damaged her lungs were. So kind of a, a, what became her primary complication, right? This big ostomy and, and we didn't know if she'd end up with short bowel syndrome. That was something we were prepared for or all sorts of malabsorption disorders, things like that. That kind of fell by the wayside. She was reconnected and everything seemed to be fine. But then the big focus was that secondary lung issue. When Lily was born, Jess and her husband were in survival mode. They lost a child, yet they were so focused on Lily's survival that they couldn't grieve. We were so hyper-focused on her survival and making sure that we knew and advocated and could do everything we could to try to keep her alive. Jess said that her coping mechanism during this difficult time was research. My husband is a, a biologist and I was a therapist. So we both, or I guess I still am technically, but I'm not working. <laughs> we both have subscriptions to medical journals. And so I would come home from the NICU and instead of sleeping at night or when I would get up to pump, I would just sit and pour through medical journals and current you know, research and articles or just anecdotal stories of things that had worked for other parents or other, you know, other microbrainies. Their research paid off and some of the things Jess researched worked. I really poured myself into, if this kid's gonna make it, she's gonna make it and I'm gonna know every single tiny thing that's going on. Jess talks of the delayed grief or delayed mourning for the loss of Lily's sister. She was in the NICU for eight months. We brought her home and she was still extremely critical. The, the ventilator settings that we brought her home on were astronomical. And we were running an ICU out of our living room. And that meant, you know, no one in, no one out. And this was pre-COVID, you know, this was just cold, cold and flu season was our big thing. And if she got sick, you know, we'd be back in the ICU in a heartbeat. So we really focused so intensely just on like keeping her alive that we were not able to really process or grieve any of this until really kind of recently. When Lily was 18 months old, Jess said, I woke up and realized one of my daughters had died and the other had some really long-term, lifelong complications. I mean, we both, we, we were just, we were just surviving for the longest time. And then as she started to improve, her health started to improve, she became less acutely critical. We, we were able to kind of, to start to process. Lily was trached at six months, so she has a tracheostomy and she is on a ventilator at night. Jess's biggest challenge now is making sure Lily's tube stays in correctly. This requires either Jess or her husband to stay up with Lily all night long. Despite running low on fuel, they are doing well medically. Lily also has a G-tube, and they are working on oral feedings. Really our focus for the, the last year since kind of the coronavirus lockdown has been, you know, specifically developmentally focused. She has a sleep study coming up and that will hopefully allow us to start weaning her off the ventilator at night. If she successfully tolerates that in the summer, we'll start capping her trach and she'll hopefully be decannulated at some point in this year. So 
really at that point, you know, her stoma will close. She may need some continued oxygen therapy, but we're, we're kind of looking for those lungs to continue to grow. And we really don't know if, you know, she could just have some pretty severe kind of asthma. She could have like full blown COPD. We really don't know as she grows what it will be. Tessa's extended family had a wide range of reaction to their new normal. A lot of people just didn't really know what to do or what to say. We were not congratulated in the way that parents are congratulated for having a baby. We, Pat and I, for a very long time, because we were so hyper-focused on Lily, we really didn't want to talk about or, or really acknowledge Autumn, our other daughter. And a lot of our family kind of took that as it never happened. And so, you know, now, like we talked about, we're, we're awake, we're processing, we're grieving. People don't really understand why now all of a sudden we, we are acknowledging that we have a child. Um, because I don't think anyone really understands the extent of that just suppression to get through what we went through. So we've been met with some some challenges in relationships. I will say my parents are incredible human beings. They came down to the NICU. So they live about two and a half hours away. They came to the NICU weekly. They sat and they read and they sung to Lily. Jess's parents went through the tracheostomy care course so they could provide respite. Her parents have really become members of their medical at-home team. So they can change a trach, change trach ties. They can troubleshoot emergencies almost as well as, as we can. I, I would say as well as we can with a little bit more nerves. <laughs> so nothing faces us anymore. But they have really stepped up and become our saving grace. Our, our medical team, our at-home care team is the four of us, my parents and Pat and, and me. And they did it without hesitation. They did it just completely selflessly. I mean, my dad is working still full time. So he, he comes down and he works from here. They pull night shift for us, which is amazing. Pat and I can sleep. And they really just, they have made this life so much less stressful. And you know, for that, we are eternally grateful. Lily's official diagnoses are bronchiopulmonary dysplasia, tracheostomy, and ventilator dependence. Some other diagnoses are asymptomatic or benign at this time. She has enlarged ventricles in her brain and a few little things like osteopenia, so she needs iron supplements. Jess explains what it's like to have a medically fragile child during COVID-19. We have lived the life of isolation much longer than COVID. COVID was like, when it, when it hit, obviously we were terrified because the recommendations were to like sterilize packages that were coming into your home and like, you know, infection control to the max. But what it has done is made our lives easier because things are more accessible to people who are like us. I guess it's a twofold thing because we also had NICU nurses that were coming to help us at home to give us some respite from time to time. And we had to stop having 
nurses and therapists come into our house because of the risk to Lily. So we lost some additional sleep, some respite time, which was hard, but we've also fallen into a very manageable routine. But grocery pickup, grocery delivery, food delivery, curbside pickup for anything. All of those things were not available to us beforehand. And when we would ask for things like that, we'd be like scoffed at. And now it's, the world is so much more accessible to us because we have to keep her safe. And so does everyone else. You know, when people say, this must be horrible for you. We, we've been in isolation since October of 2019. We have not seen anyone really other than my parents. And, you know, people say like, oh, this has been going on forever. Like, honestly, it's, we would be doing it either way. They were able to get vaccinated and the first groups vaccinated. But Lily was still too young for the vaccine. I mean, the only real loss that we feel on a day-to-day basis is socialization. Lily has never had another child. It's really hard. She's here by herself. And, you know, that also brings the sting of like, well, she should have a twin that's running around playing with her too. But, you know, at this point, we would be taking her to library, book readings and music classes and playing with so many of our friends have kids locally. And, you know, that's something that she will not experience except for via Zoom and FaceTime. But so many others are keeping their kids home too. Their family story is out there. They were featured on the Today Show The Instagram page that they first created to inform their loved ones now has thousands of followers. When we found out Lily was going to be traked, I I used Instagram to reach out to other other families. I was terrified. Our hospital staff was amazing, but they only knew from clinical hospital setting, you know, I needed to know what things were going to be like at home and how to set up med dispensation and how to organize all of her equipment and things like that. And there really wasn't anything out there that wasn't on social media. So locally, there were a couple other families with older trait kids, but we really wanted to know what it was going to like be like to bring our, our infant home. So I started kind of reaching out to other parents, but my profile was on private and they didn't respond because they were worried. So I made a public profile and started talking to a lot of moms, some of which are my closest friends now and have gotten us through some really, really difficult times. She made a post about working with a stroller company to make an accessible stroller for Lily. That post went viral and things took off from there. And so we kind of weighed the risks and benefits of being so public and really determined that the benefits significantly outweighed the risks, both in in connection with other medically fragile parents and other, you know, parents who have, have had children die. And, you know, kind of educating the public, right, the random person who comes on and says, like, what's this thing in her neck? We're doing a lot of kind of advocacy and a lot of kind of outreach to the general public to to talk about what we've been through, how to support NICU parents, how to support parents who have gone through child loss. We just really, we weigh the risks and the benefits of, of what we put out there. And really, it's been an overwhelmingly positive thing. Despite all the challenges, work, stress, grief, she has some joys. I mean, there is something to appreciate and to love and to be ecstatic about in every day. And I think it took a really long time for me to get to the point where I can say that. But 
From day one, Pat and I, of course, we were in a thousand percent. No matter what the future looked like for her, no matter what you know, physical limitations or disabilities she had or cognitive or anything, we were in. And we didn't know what that would look like. And seeing her grow, develop, flourish, speak, something we never thought she would do, walk, something we never thought she would do. Those are those big milestones that just mean that much more to us. But also we have come to appreciate things that are, are taken for granted by typical parents, by parents of non-medically fragile children. The first day that we were able to take her upstairs, one of us, instead of two of us, one with her and one with all of her equipment. I mean, that was incredible. It was the most incredibly freeing thing to be able to pick her up whenever I wanted because I used to have to ask permission in the NICU. She was intubated. All of those little things that other people just, it's just part of their everyday are just these gigantic celebrations for us. So we have these big milestones, but we have these tiny little inch stones too that every day we get to celebrate something that we, you know, that is new or that we couldn't have already experienced. As parents, we do the best that we can. And, you know, people people who are not in our situation kind of look at us and think, I couldn't imagine, or how do you juggle this and that? Or how do you find time to do the medical stuff, but then also developmental things like that? And you do what you can. You do everything that you can for your child. We were not expecting this. Most people are not expecting, you know, whether it's an in utero diagnosis or something, you still go into to conception and to, to pregnancy expecting everything to be, you know, to be fine. And it ends up being what it is. You, you do the best you can for your kid and you love them and you push them and you meet them where they are. And, and that's, you know, that's all you can do. Just love your kid through it. I appreciate just sharing about Lily and their family. It was an honor to meet her and learn about the challenge and triumphs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode. Orange Socks is an initiative of Rise Incorporated, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting and advocating for people with disabilities. Follow Orange Socks on Facebook and Instagram and visit our website, orangesocks.org, for more stories and to find national and local resources to help parents of children with disabilities.